0: The film proves once again that war is hell, but the aftermath can be just as visceral and thoughtful. That's from Brian Truitt of USA Today. An outstanding film, 1917. Get ready for my glowing review of one of the best pictures that are coming up from Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins. We're reviewing 1917 along with Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women and uh, also talk about Shia LaBeouf, his fantastic work in Honey Boy, a very personal film, which is about himself and his father as he plays his father in the movie. Think how crazy that is. My man, Adam Amin is also going to be our special guest this week, and the Mount Rushmore is going to be the best war films in honor of 1917. We'll also do a total recall of the 2004 Oscars, which is uh, films from 2003, so 2004 Oscars. Films from 2003. Thank you so much, as always, for checking out Cinephile. I appreciate you being along for the ride. I uh, Hope you're having a wonderful Christmas. If you're celebrating, happy Hanukkah, whatever your tradition is this time of year. Hopefully, you're with friends and family uh, and having a wonderful time. And as always, Cinephile doesn't take a break because it is award season, which is why we're cranking out another one here. So without further delay, let's get right to it. Schofield and Blake, two young British soldiers during the First World War, are given a seemingly impossible mission. With time against them, they must deliver a message deep in enemy territory that will stop their own men and Blake's own brother walking straight into a deadly trap. It's a fairly straightforward premise, but it is brilliantly rendered. Thank God, as always, to Ben Lyons, my man who hooked me up with the BFCA, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, which is why I get to see all these screeners. And why I've seen 1917, which I believe is going to be limited release Christmas Day, probably more wider release January 10th. So go check it out as soon as you can. You're going to see the biggest theater possible. Obviously, uh, I'm lucky I get to watch it here at home. I don't have to uh, make the effort because all these screeners. But let me tell you something. 1917 is one of the best movies of the year. It is an incredible spectacle of filmmaking. And it might be the best war film since Saving Private Ryan. And I'm a huge fan of Dunkirk, but I'm telling you, 1917 is right there with it. Dunkirk was an amazing spectacle. And I saw it with my buddies. We went there and saw it in Connecticut in this great IMAX theater. And just the, you know, sound and fury was just amazing. But. 1917 has a certain different level of power, and all credit goes to director Sam Mendes and cinematographer Roger Deakins. These guys are both legends in their own right. You know, Mendes, this guy can do popcorn films. He did one of the best James Bond movies of recent years with Skyfall. He can do serious drama like Revolutionary Road, which I loved with Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. He can win an Oscar, as he did for American Beauty. I mean, this is a guy who is just... Literally, everything he touches turns to gold. And then you've got Roger Deakins, who is one of the great cinematographers of all time. The guy's 70 years old, um, but he's best known for his work with the Coen brothers and and Sam Mendes and Denis Villeneuve. Um, I mean, listen, Deakins always is working at a different level. He received the 2011 American Society of Cinematographers Lifetime Achievement Award. That was back in 2011. Like, everyone knows how great this guy is, and he just wins award after award after award. He finally won his first Oscar for Blade Runner 2049. He'd been nominated, like, umpteen times. The movies I particularly love that he shot, Fargo is amazing, No Country for Old Men, um, you know, A Serious Man, True Grit. I mean, you name it. Whatever he does, he turns to gold. He he actually shot Condu in Scorsese's film, which I thought was beautifully shot um Shawshank Redemption he shot you forget that one guy said 14 Oscar nominations and one win and you forget he actually shot the Shawshank Redemption Sicario I mean a beautiful mind ridiculous ridiculous how talented Roger Deakins is and the premise of this film is what it's all one shot say what a war film that's one shot I have no idea how they did it I did some reading after the film apparently they would do like seven or eight minute takes Think about that seven or eight minute takes. And let's say at the the fifth minute, oh, a little bit of lens flare. Got to do it again. Oh, the the actor took one wrong step. A little bit of mud somehow flew up. Oh, the, the power tactics was a little bit off. They said, Mandy said he put these actors through six months of boot camp just to get them into the best shape of their lives. And then they spent another couple of months just blocking literally as an actor it's like a dancer like choreography okay take two steps to your right then three steps to your left then you're gonna sprint hard to this spot then you're gonna stop there because we got this bomb going off here like I couldn't imagine they asked Roger Deakins about it and and they said it looked really hard the way it was way it was done and he goes yeah well it was (laughs) like no mincing words this was a hard hard film to make and my understanding is, and listen, there have been other one-shot movies. Credit to my buddy Scott who Immediately pointed out Russian Ark, which was a very boring movie, but it was all done in one shot. I mean, it's just, God, I mean, that was that movie takes years off your life, how slow it is. But, yeah, one shot. Uh, Hitchcock's Rope, I believe, also one shot. So like, it's done before, but it's incredibly difficult and incredibly rare. And I, I guess in editing, you can make those seven- or eight-minute takes look as if it's one shot. But it's not as if the camera never stops moving you know, the camera will be tracking as the two soldiers are walking through a tunnel. Like, it'll just be beautiful. I mean, the steady cam is just out of this world. Steady cam shot for two or three minutes. But then the camera will stop, but it just hovers on the guys. But what it does is it's more than just a gimmick, which Deacon said when Mendes first told me, "Because well, listen, this is kind of a gimmick. It's more than a gimmick because what it does is it never lets you escape. It is absolutely claustrophobic and a really smart way of making a war film because you never get a break. There are moments you're like, God, can we just get a cutaway? I just want a shot of the scenery. Just give me a nice landscape wide shot just so I can take a breath and then get back to the fact these guys are facing ammunition that's, you know, overboard. They haven't eaten, starvation, malnutrition, you name it. I just need a break for 30 seconds. Give me a nice musical montage, okay, with a bunch of random shots. You're never getting that. The camera is always on these guys and you can't get that break. And it's not motion sickness because I mentioned the camera will stop but then the camera will start tracking again. And there was one scene, and I never do this. Normally, I watch the movie. And then if I want to go back, I might do it. But I watch my and and immediately in real time, I pause. I got to rewind that. There's this minute-long tracking shot, which is exceptional. The film is about an hour 50. I think it's at the hour 30 mark. But he's being told by one soldier "You can't go. And he's, you know, commanding officer. And he just runs. And this dead sprint, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, just... It makes you fall in love with movies. I mean, just the craft of filmmaking. There's like bombs going off. The cameras are flying along at full speed as this guy's in a dead sprint. And I'm like, I, I was watching it just going, how do you do this? Like the, the choreography was just incredible. The filmmaking is amazing. And everyone knows that I want Scorsese to win for The Irishman. But I think Bong Joon-ho might win Best Director for Parasite, which I have no issue with, really, because that's one of my favorite movies of the year. And then I watched this win, and I go, listen, if Sam Mendes wins Best Director, I have no issue. Honestly, that's how great this movie is. And I'm like, did the fact he pulled this off? I mean, Deakins. Here's another thing. A cinematography, you could have looked at some other films. Now I'm like, no, Deakins has to win. Are you kidding? It's one shot. It's amazing. It's going to be his 15th Oscar nomination. It's an incredible war film. As I mentioned, the story is fairly uh, thin. I mean, it's just two soldiers trying to deliver this message. But really, you're not watching this movie for the screenplay. Okay? It's not going to get an for best screenplay. The dialogue isn't particularly memorable. You do have actors like Colin Firth and Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch along with the uh, <clears throat> relatively no-name actor of uh, the, the main leads. But um, it's an exceptional piece of work. You see it for for just the the, the visual splendor. I'm sure they will get nominated in a lot of the technical categories. I hope it does well come awards time. But <clears throat> it's a wonderful film. It's one of my top five movies of the year. We'll be giving it our top ten in the next week's Cinephile. But 1917, Joe, incredible film. I'm giving it four
1: Maple Leafs. and you talked about this last week. This is why I could never, ever be an actor, to do a seven, eight-minute long take, and then to be told at the five-minute mark that we got to do it again. I can't do that. I could do the part where I get in a, get in shape, get in really, really good shape, but then after that, I just couldn't. But that sounds so incredible. I'm definitely going to watch this.
0: Yeah, it has my highest recommendation. You know, it makes me think of Apocalypse Now, the, the great uh, helicopter assault, right of the Valkyries is playing. and. And Roger Ebert had said, you know, the problem sometimes with war films, maybe this was Truffaut who said it, but Ebert was quoting him. but he said that, you know, war is hell, but because of the very nature of what you're seeing, it makes the war look exhilarating. Even though it's it's awful, it's contemptible, but because of the spectacle, you're like, oh, my God, you're entranced by it. And that's, in some ways, a way to describe 1917. It's marvelous to look at, even though you realize what these soldiers went through was awful. Mendy's a very personal film. He's never written a script before. He co-wrote the screenplay for this one. Grandfather served in World War I. You see him uh, at the end of the story. I think there's a little bit of end credits that they mention that. So, honestly, incredible film. Go check out 1917. Next up, Little Women, exploring the lives of the March sisters in 1860s New England and the aftermath of the American Civil War. According to one of its producers, the new adaptation focuses more on the sisters' young adult lives, particularly after Meg, Joe, and Amy leave their family home. Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Timothée Chalamet, Florence Pugh, Laura Dern, Tracy Letts, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, and most shockingly, my man Bob Odenkirk shows up in the movie. I mean, this might be one of the most miscast actors I've ever seen in my life. I love Odenkirk. The guy's the best. I'm like, why is Better Call Saul in Little Women? Showing up in this period garb, it was hysterical. I just started laughing out loud. Let me say this. It's written and directed by Greta Gerwig. Uh, I don't know the book, so I can't tell you if it's a faithful adaptation. But I thought it was charming and sweet and certainly something that will appeal massively to female audiences, of which I am not one. So I'm going to give it uh, two and a half Maple leaves because I think it's a good movie. But it's not something that I would return to. It's not something I would seek out because I had the screener, I watched it. I can appreciate the costume design, production design, and what Greta Gerwig did, which I think is is hard to do, which is take, you know, a classic novel from the 1860s New England and try to make it relevant in today's world. It's well acted across the board, particularly Saoirse Ronan. She actually got snubbed by the SAG, so I actually don't know if she's going to get a Best Actress nomination. But would nice to see her rewarded. Florence Pugh, in particular, is very good as Amy March. I loved her Midsommar, a movie which is getting no Oscar buzz at all. But uh, I'd love to see Florence Pugh get nominated for Midsommar. But she's in there as Amy March. The other actors are kind of pick and pop, you know, Tracy Letts, as I mentioned, Laura Dern, Chris Cooper's always good. But listen, Claire Atkins, this is a movie for her. This is a movie for people who love Little Women, love period pieces. My mom loves that, or you know, my mom loves that era. My wife loves this kind of stuff. I don't think it's a movie for me and Joe, but I'm giving it two and a half leaves. It's a good movie uh, for all our female listeners out there. If you like this kind of thing, go check it out. This holiday season, maybe it's a good date movie. You know, one for me, one for you. Guys want to watch 1917. Girls want to watch Little Women. Maybe that's the way to go. Uh, Chalamet is good in the movie as well He's obviously one of these guys Picks a lot of good parts Has a relationship with Greta Gerwig And uh, of course there's Jerona and Gerwig Reuniting from Lady Bird So good for Greta Gerwig I mean I, I think when you make a good film Like Lady Bird A great film like Lady Bird And you get rewarded you Just okay what do I want to do now It reminds me of what happened With P.T. Anderson after Boogie Nights Francis Ford Coppola told him While he was having dinner with Warren Beatty Hey, the next movie, make sure it's something you want to do because you won't get this chance ever again. After that, they're going to have their hooks in you. So you do the one you want to do. So I think for we're going to Gerwig, hey, big success with Lady Bird. What's the one you really want to do? I've always wanted to adapt a little women. Okay, do it now because then after that, you may not get the chance. So hopefully it's a success. I think it's a good film. Um, Helen O'Hara does say this of Empire, not just for women of whatever size, warm but never wishy-washy, cozy without being cutesy. A superb adaptation of the source. Further evidence that Gerwig is the real deal. I would completely agree with that. Greta Gerwig definitely is the real deal. Will be nice to see her maybe get a Best Director nomination. It appears to be a boys club this year. Alonzo Duraldi from The Rap. In an era in which sentimentality is a seasoning that filmmakers either shun entirely or employ with too heavy a hand, Gerwig crafts a work that is moving without being manipulative. This is a Little Women for the Ages. Wow. Joe, odds you're going to see Little Women this holiday season.
1: Maybe not this holiday season, but... Definitely sometime in the spring or summer. Uh, I think, I mean, it's commendable to Greta Gerwig that this is an adaptation that has gone through a few incarnations through a few different directors. So, uh, you know, kudos to her for picking a book that has been done before and making it different. Um, As far as best director to go, do you think now that you've seen it that she was snubbed? Would you put her above Todd Phillips or would you put someone else in Todd Phillips' place?
0: I would put Noah Baumbach ahead of uh, Todd Phillips's place for Marriage Story. So my nominees now, like with a bullet, I would have Scorsese for The Irishman. I would have Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, Sam Mendes for Parasite. Those three to me are locks. I don't think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino's best, but I do get what he was doing with it, nostalgic, wonderfully rendered. So there's your four, and my fifth would be Baumbach for Marriage Story. I think Gerwig for Little Women on the outside looking in, I definitely would have her, though, ahead of uh, – Ahead of Todd Phillips. So it's uh, it's an interesting race right now. Like I said, it's just always such a boys club. it would be nice to see a woman get in there for female directing. But uh, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, to be honest with you. All
1: right. Well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned come Oscar season. Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh the next one is Honey Boy, again, which is getting snub. My man Scott Feimer was like personally aggrieved when he was tweeting about this. And nobody knows Shia LaBeouf better than Ben Lyons. Honey Boy from a script by Shia LaBeouf and co starring LaBeouf is a personal passion project. And Ben was with Shia as he was going to like different theaters in Los Angeles and showing the film and really trying to get a push for it. It is a deeply personal work. It is tough to watch and it's about Shia LaBeouf's story. It's about a child actor and the abuse that he endures at his father. Verbally abusive, without question. I mean, this guy's dropping F-bombs left and right, and he's also physically abusive in a couple of scenes which are very tough to watch when he slaps his child around. Makes me think of this boy's life. Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, again playing an abusive, oh, that was a stepfather. But Shia LaBeouf takes his life story, puts it on the screen, which I think is awfully raw and commendable and brave, and most daring, he plays his dad. So he casts a child actor, obviously playing Shia <clears throat> when he was 12. And then Shia LaBeouf plays his dad. Got the glasses, the receding hairline, long hair. And he had to get his dad's consent when he did the film. And he said him and his father had a better relationship now. And he told his dad, Mel Gibson's going to play in the movie. <laughs> think about that. Mel Gibson's playing. Okay, fine, you can do it. He goes, I never could have told him the truth. And then sure enough, you know, I'm playing him and I just show the film to him. But I think his dad actually... Likes the film, if you can call it likes, if you see yourself being viewed as a, such a monster. Although I think he uh, knows the kind of father he was and probably has regrets about it and appreciates the honesty with which the film is made. Short movie, 90 minutes. I don't think it totally works because it's done in flashback. There's, there's one sequence which is supposed to be Shia as a young actor. That's played by Lucas Hedges from Manchester by the Sea. So that's Shia in rehab, and you know this is apparently post- all the success he's had he's trying to find himself so that it mean, feels a little more like goodwill hunting you know therapy scenes which didn't work as much for me i just didn't think there was a lot of meat on the bone but i loved the flashback sequences which was shy as a kid and i thought his performance as his dad was outstanding i mean he was really really strong in that role because he here's what he did is he plays him I mean, he's a villain no question the guy's emotionally and physically abusive to a child but but he shows the shades of humanity and the fact he really does love his son, you know, he calls him Honey Boy because he believes in him. He's practicing scripts with his kid, and he's telling him, "Listen, Honey Boy, I believe in you. You're going to be a star. Like you're going to be the man." But he's just got so much self-loathing, and the fact that he's a felon for, uh, I believe, uh, consorting with underage women. I mean, he's just a mess. I mean, there's one scene he, like his son's yelling at him. His 12 year old son's telling him, "Listen, Dad, shape up. You got to start treat me better. Stop being a jerk." And his dad slaps him, and then goes to a strip club, and he's doing drugs like in the bathroom. Like this guy is brutal. And so, for Shia to portray that life story, to put it up on the screen, I thought, like I said, it was it took a lot of gumption, and to play his dad like that was really unvarnished. And uh, I thought it was a really good movie. Honey, boy, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Shia, there was some talk about a supporting actor nomination, but as we discussed last week on the pod, I just don't think there's enough spots for him. But three Maple Leafs, maybe I should even give it three and a half. I'll give it three for now. But it, I, it's a really good movie that stays with you, and I thought it was impactful. And uh, I really commend Shia LaBeouf for making the movie because I think it took a lot of guts to make it.
1: It seems like it offers a really good window into all the drama that surrounded Shia LaBeouf over his entire career.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if you're a fan of his and wonder why he came to where, I mean, it's not like navel-gazing, but I think that psychology of saying this is where he came from, this is what his father was like. Um, and no matter what, you still always get a sense that his father did love him. He just he had trouble showing it, clearly, and had a lot of flaws. Like I said, a convicted felon and... Just didn't know how to show that love, but it really did care for son. And I'm happy to hear I did see Shy and Jimmy Kimmel that apparently reparations have been made in that father son relationship. So definitely check out A Honey Boy, Three of Elise. Now it's time for our special guest.
2: Support your journey to wellness at B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
0: A pleasure to bring in one of the most avid fans of Cinephile and a guy who I'm an avid fan of as well. His name is Adam Amin. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam Amin. One of my dear friends, uh, I think my lone best friend remaining at ESPN. So he's the one who can give me all the juice of what's happening at the worldwide Sports Leader. But seriously, he's one of the best play-by-play voices in the country, whether it comes to college football or the NBA, Major League Baseball, college hoops, softball, wrestling, you name it, Adam has called it and he's an absolute star. As I've said to him before, I'm tired of this rising star label. He just is a star, period. And now he makes his cinephile debut after years of devoted listening. This guy travels more than George Clooney up in the air and he's always downloading the cinephile podcast so at long last AA makes his appearance my man how we doing
3: man long time first time right this is this is a, a big deal for me I mean I this is probably not a big deal at all to anybody who listens to your podcast but for me this is a huge deal
0: <laughs> listen you gotta have a podcast of your friends on okay this is exactly what this is I could talk about your movie credentials and we will get to rookie of the year but in the meantime let's start with the Irishman which I've been which I've been hyping up like no end. So I don't know what your th- we talked last week, but I don't know what your thoughts on the movie are. I don't know if you like it, know if you love it, know if you hated it. I want to hear your thoughts unbiased here on Scorsese's latest.
3: I, I, I will address the two things that I feel like everybody is addressing right off the bat. Is it too long? If you're looking at it in the sense of, okay, is three and a half hours too long for a modern day, let's go to the theater motion picture. Sure, you can make that argument, all right? I sat through, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame because I wanted to see it in a big scope on a large-scale screen with, you know, surround sound and in a theater with other people. And I think you have to have that length of a movie to be able to hit all these benchmarks and all these posts that you want to hit. That's fine. For a movie like The Irishman, that's, that's the length that it is, three and a half, that isn't going to be seen and hasn't been seen in theaters by most people because they have a Netflix account or they know somebody who does and are watching this movie i don't understand like the backlash about the timing of it because it's pretend it's a Netflix like six episode you know story arc like limited series run with scorsese directing and and all of these superstar actors these legendary actors in it i don't know how you cut that down without losing some of the impact of it so I feel like the timing, especially for the format that it's in, and I get if you want to go see it in a theater. I know you've you've gone multiple times that, man. like I get that if you are basing it off the idea of all right, this is this has got to be two two fifteen, two and a half at most for a long narrative structured story, and you you see three thirty, you might go well this this is too long. I feel like for the format that it was in, and I watched it on a nice big flat screen TV with nice you know a nice sound bar at home. I wanted to kind of feel it but I'm not going to go out to a theater and watch it when I have the convenience of watching it on Netflix. I loved it. I thought, I thought you, anything more you cut, you lose impact somewhere. You lose impact between Pesci and De Niro. If you cut one of their scenes, you lose the, the overarching story about what the relationship has been over decades. You lose that with Jimmy Hoffa and, and Frank Sheeran. If you cut out some of these interactions, like in the you know, he's sleeping in the same bedroom as him. You need to keep establishing a lot of these things. So I feel like the story length is not a factor to me. And the only other thing that I thought about, Adnan, you, and obviously we chatted about this a little bit. I didn't notice the anti-aging stuff, the de-aging stuff, except for when I first saw Robert De Niro and I go, oh, Robert De Niro looks young. And then like you talked about, I think when he beats up Joe the grocer, when when his yes. daughter, you know, saying, oh, he pushed me or whatever. And the first time we really see... You know, his daughter have, have to see him in action. I think the movement's a little bit, certainly. And I watched the conversation afterwards, where they were saying, hey, I have to remind, you know, Scorsese had to remind uh, Pacino and De Niro, hey, hey he's got to be 49 in this scene. You know, you, you got you to gotta walk and kind of act and, and posture like a 49-year-old rather than a 70-year-old. So those are the only two things that really stuck out that a lot of people were complaining about. The first one I don't understand. The second one I can see, but I get over it. That suspension of disbelief eventually seeps in.
0: Yeah. And I think the one that, you know, maybe people focus on a little bit as well is that uh, war flashback because De Niro obviously doesn't look, you know, he at 25, looks like he's 40 whatever it is. But, but I'm with you. You just have a little bit of suspension of belief. Listen, this is much better than having younger actors playing these guys for like an hour of the movie. I'd rather yeah. have De Niro not quite looking the age, but it's still him rather than a younger actor doing it, which is why Scorsese says he ended up doing it. And so I, I'm with you. I think it's, it's weird that. Like literally, many people just focus on that. Like, oh, the grocery scene. I'm like, okay, who cares? Fine, it wasn't good. One minute of the film, it still doesn't take away from the fact it's this, you know, deeply felt melancholy rumination on life, and and it isn't derivative. You know, this isn't these guys repeating themselves, which is why Pesci was so reluctant to do it. He kept saying, "Well, we've done this already. We already did Goodfellas. We did, you know, what more is there to say?" But as I think, you know, you would agree with me that there is much more to say here with the film because it's a much different feel than those movies.
1: Yeah,
3: I, I agree with that, and I, and I also feel like there's there's a loss of impact if you don't see these guys in in a, in a long arch, you know, a long story arc. I think you lose some of the impact. Pesci was fantastic, by the way, and and I I, I would say because I, I I almost felt like Joey the Blonde, like uh, Sebastian Maniscalco's character. I almost thought that that would have been typical Pesci from like 1990, like that's his Goodfellas character kind of coming out. I understand, I like the fact that he's not playing that guy. I like the fact that he's playing the subtle, understated... You know, he's playing Russell as this quiet, well-knowing, very much like the in the old mafia tradition of, I know everything and I don't speak a word to anybody about it. Like, I just... I like that he plays this kind of subtle, quiet character for the entirety of the movie. There's no aggression. There's just calm reasonability. And he plays it so spectacularly, which I think we forget sometimes about Pesci because he's so iconic in Casino. He's so iconic in Goodfellas. He's so iconic even in comedy roles, you know, in My Cousin Vinny and in Home Alone. And things. we picture him in these characters that are kind of more outlandish and have big moments and, and these big, you know, he's, he has his hair set on fire in Home Alone. He's breaking guys, you know, jaws in in Casino and Goodfellas. He's doing the uh, Am I a Clown to You thing in 1990. And all of a sudden he's playing this incredibly subtle reasoned character. And I, I think that was one of the strengths of the movie. He used a great word, elegiac, to, to to talk about this movie. It's it's mournful. It is supposed to be a sad movie. It is supposed to bring you around to the reality. There's not a lot of glitz and glamour in this movie. There really isn't, other than a nice ring and Hoff has got some money and there's some big money uh, amounts thrown around about how much everybody's making. But other than that, there's really not a lot of glitz and glamour in this. And I think every quiet character kind of played it well, including, I I know the other controversy was Anna Paquin. I I thought she was tremendous in her role. Like I get you would love to see a a really good actress like Anna Paquin talk more or have like more lines and things like that. But I thought in her role, she was so spectacular. She played the subtlety. She played the inner anger and resentment so strongly. And it came out in, in such an opposite way when she was playing opposite of Pacino, when she's, you know, she loves how she loves Jimmy Hoffa. She she does a, you know, her character as a young person does a class report on Jimmy Hoffa and how great he is. I just, I love the quiet moments of all of these characters. I, I think they did a spectacular job of not going over the top with a lot of this. So when there is a big, loud scene, like when, when you know, Escalco's character gets shot in, in the restaurant, that's like a peak Scorsese scene to me, like that's classic Scorsese, but it only happens... A handful of times in, the, in in the movie, and everything else is very quiet and understated. The characters included
0: yeah it really de-glamorizes the mob but you're right that that mob it was amazing that tracking shot the way he follows dinero in there and follows him boom boom bam boom and the car comes camera like pans up because great shot of the street oh, you're right that sequence in particular was amazing i also think you are mentioning the cast and i love the point you made about maniscalco being like what pesci used to be you're right that hair trigger temper really flashy and cocky the guy who i think was really good is stephen graham playing tony pro yeah. i kept thinking you know how hard that would be. You're in a scene against Al Pacino and you're matching wits with a living legend and you have to like hate this guy. You antagonize him. And that whole sequence they have in prison about the money and wait, wait, you're in in here too. Yeah, yeah, but I'm in here for something different. And and later, I mean, that scene in Miami, again, you're opposite De Niro and Pacino and he gets him to try to apologize for you people which has now become a story because Don Cherry got fired for saying you people, again, with the whole racial connotation. But I thought that whole sequence, the way it was written, the way it was played, speaking of other actors who haven't gotten a lot of love, Stephen Graham, a terrific Tony pro.
3: I, th- I think so, too. And I, I feel like that's the character that I think originally Pesci, like the thought was, oh, let's put Pesci in that character. Like, let's make Pesci the Tony pro character that has that that kind of sarcastic, uh, a personality, and you know, oh, Pesci would be perfect for that. And I, I think that's part of the reason he turned, you know, kind of turned away from a role like that. I love how Steven played this role. And again, it's it's a cockiness, but there's also a, a respect that there's there's kind of inherent in the character. And maybe it's just because you're already in the setting, you're in a Scorsese movie, you're in you're dealing with mobs, and you're dealing with bosses, and you're dealing with people who kind of embody these types of roles and personalities. And he embodied it so so perfectly like you want to hate him and you do it could be if you especially if you're rooting for De Niro or Pacino or Pesci at any point in the movie you're kind of automatically pushed to hating this guy but he's got it there's a likability about him as this boss like there is a little bit of hey you should have, you shouldn't say that you shouldn't say you people and part of you is like you know what he, he shouldn't he shouldn't say that so just the way he played that and, and I feel like getting a lot of people on your side in just these little moments and nobody This is one of those movies where I feel like everybody who's featured at some point or another scores, you know, like everybody scores in this movie. Like, no, like certainly De Niro and Pesci and Pacino are at the forefront of it and rightfully so, and they're going to get the majority of the shots, but everybody's getting the ball at some point or another and everybody delivers. Like I, I, I thought, I I'm probably saying it incorrectly, but Stephanie Kurtzuba who plays uh, De Niro's wife in the movie yeah Uh, i mean she was i I remember her from wolf of wall street she was she was great it has a very unlikable likable character in Wolf of wall street very good in like two two shots here you know she gets like two kind of moments in the movie and she plays them very well you know paquin doesn't say much at all Says what seven words but every time the camera is on her you're like what is she thinking in this in this spot so i feel like all these characters all these actors and actresses did a great job of kind of embodying all these quiet characters and, and you really need that to round it out because there are a lot of edges in this movie, especially if it's going to be three and a half hours. There's a lot of edges that you need to make sure are kind of smoothed down. And these characters all do a really good job of smoothing out the story on the edge.
0: Well said. We're talking to Adam Amin. Of course, you can see him on ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter, at Adam Amin, and on Instagram as well. Marriage story. You are not the product of divorce. You have not ever been divorced, but I know... <laughs> <laughs> you cr- this out. You're not bringing personal, uh, you know, uh, artifice to this, Adam. But what did you think? Did this match the hype? I think it's one of the year's best. A real acting showcase for Driver Johansson. I think the script—it's a lock. Bombax to win Best Original Screenplay. What'd you think?
3: You and I talked about this before, Adnan, And just about we—you know—a few weeks ago, we were talking about Adam Driver. Is he like the, the great working American actor right now? You know, is he—is he the best male actor we have working in this particular generation? You know, beyond the. The DiCaprios and the Brad Pitts of the world. You know, the next line of people I think might be headlined by Adam Driver, frankly, and and his performance, the the buildup that he has, obviously, to the the big scene that everybody's been kind of hyping about when he and Johansson have this really intense fight where they say these terrible things to each other. I didn't get overly emotional watching it, uh, like like we joked around. I'm not a child of divorce. I don't know how this works, but I understood the buildup and how you can get to a point where you just say these awful things to somebody that you supposedly love. And the way he plays it is very relatable. And that's the big thing with Driver. Like, even though he's got this distinct look about him and, you know, he's very tall, he's kind of gangly. You don't know if he's good looking or not. (laughs) It's it's obviously your mileage may vary type of thing. But just the way he kind of captures the screen, he's got a presence about him. And, you know, whether it was Black Klansman or to see him in a Star Wars movie, kind of embody this evil villain and now put him in this spot where he's, Relatable. You cheer for him. You hate him at the same time because he, you know, he cheats on Scarlett Johansson at one point in the movie, and and it's discussed and it's brought up. It's just incredible to see how he can encapsulate so much of what's important about Bondback's screenplay, and I think he did it masterfully. I think Johansson was excellent. I don't know. I, I don't think either one of them will get the win in their categories during the Oscars. I just think the categories are so loaded. In particular, the Best Actor side this year. Uh, Laura Dern, though, put her at the top of the list for Supporting Actress. I thought she was outstanding smart uh, this smart kind of cunning but still sympathetic lawyer that you know is trying to do what she can for Scarlett Johansson's character her playing off of Ray Liotta in the courtroom scene is so great I, I was I thought Laura Dern had a had a dynamic performance and a couple of really good uh pitches over the middle to swing at hard and and she had a couple home runs in these great segments that Baumbach wrote for that character
0: I love the baseball analogy. And you're right. When I walked out of there, I said, well, Laura Dern's winning an Academy Award because cunning is the right word. I mean, the, when she's first meeting driver and clearly outwitting him when Alan Alda is just completely feckless. I mean, yeah. Dern is just, you know, she's got that charming smile and she's just destroying the guy to bits. And you're going, oh, my gosh, she's ruthless. And then when he goes back to Leota, who is <laughs> just a house on fire. I mean, he, Alec Baldwin is telling story on his podcast and you know, he was going through his divorce to Kim Basinger. He goes, I went from Leota to... Alda. He goes, I met a guy who was like Leona and he goes, he was just, he was seething as I was talking to him. Like, he was just so angry. I was like, oh my God. He goes, I don't think I can work with this guy. But then Alda, of course, is useless and completely gets, uh, you know, turned around by Laura Dern. So it was... um my only quibble of the movie, I, I thought the scene where he sings Sondheim's Being Alive was so contrived. I mean, I literally, I took off a half yeah. of Maple Leaf. I would have given it four Maple Leafs, Adam. I took off a half of Maple I was in the crowd the New York Film Festival, and everyone started cheering. And I said, like, this is so ridiculous. This is such a manipulative, <laughs> contrived scene. I'm immediately deducting a half of Maple Leaf right there.
3: I like, and I don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a musical theater kid. I grew up, you know, performing in these things. I love Sondheim. And I, lo- I like the kind of, hey, he's a theater director. He, he kind of transitions into, into singing this song. And then like, there's, but there's no reaction to it. If his coworkers all of a sudden see him singing this song full from start to finish and they're kind of egging him on early and say, oh, go ahead, you know keep going. There's no reaction and there's no response to it. And the scene just ends. And I just kind of thought, well, that's, that felt a little bit unsatisfying. If they had made it shorter, if they they had faded out with just him singing and like th- these are obviously very pointed lyrics, you know, being alive and someone to make you upset and hold you too close. And these are very pointed lyrics, very specific to this script. I don't mind it being in there, but there was no reaction from his uh, theater company afterwards. And it just kind of like there's no even cheering in the background. He just kind of breathes heavily. And I want to know, what are, this, what are the rest of his coworkers and colleagues thinking right now in this scene? Because this guy just went through an entire Sondheim piece with no reaction whatsoever. And it's clearly an emotional time for him. So I just felt like there was something missing in that. So I agree with you. It's, it's, I have no problem with it being there. I just felt like it could have been done a little bit differently to have a little bit more impact.
0: Um. And we go to this. We go from from the Irishman and the likes of Marriage Story to the fact that you, you were once asked by thespun.com, dot I don't know how guilty I really feel with this in terms of a guilty pleasure movie, <laughs> but I do own the special edition, The Karate Kid from nineteen eighty four, GTFO <laughs> Jaden on DVD.
3: I I will say this: one of my one of my late father's favorite movies. He loved the Pat Morita character. And by the way, very good screenplay. Like, I, I think people kind of look at The Karate Kid as almost a caricature movie in the 1980s. When this was like a Best Picture nominee, and Morita was up for Best Supporting Actor. Like, he got nominated for an Oscar for that movie. The screenplay was really, really good. And I think because it's become a, almost canon of the 1980s, and obviously now there's that, you know, the the the, the series, uh, the Cobra Kai series on YouTube that kind of you know, lit the spark again, and and a little bit of nostalgia. I think it almost falls into the nostalgic category against its own will. You know, like, I feel like this is actually a really good screenplay, and a really nice story. And it's a little bit cheesy, and the movie is very much set in 1983, 1984, whatever. But I I actually think the movie's really good. And the Marina character, the Mr. Miyagi character, is a phenomenal character. He's supportive, he's empathetic, He's got all these incredible skills, obviously, as a martial artist, but he's like a really positive, empathetic father figure in this, not only in this movie, but in the series. I always enjoyed it. And obviously my dad and I used to bond over this movie because he thought Marina's character was hilarious, which he was in a lot of the moments in that movie.
0: Oh, yeah. Listen, wax on, wax off. You don't get much more iconic (laughs) than that. Um, What fictional athlete from a sports movie or TV show would you be the funnest to call on air? Henry Rowan Gardner Rookie of the Year. Why is that your pick?
3: I mean, it's got to be the best and easiest story to tell. A kid, kid, you know, ripped out of the the stands after blazing a ball from the Wrigley bleachers all the way to home plate, Uh, 12 years old, and somehow gets through any of the collective bargaining uh, issues that will probably take place. It's a fascinating story if you were to put it in an actual context of Major League Baseball. And plus... Think about who he's striking out in these movies. Like, like Bond and Benia in their old school uniforms and their Pirates and Mets uniforms show up in this movie. Uh, I, I can't remember who else he strikes out. I think it's somebody from the Cardinals in the movie. Like, they brought in, like, three or four real Major League Baseball players. And he's, like, he's, fan, he's whiffing these guys. So I just feel like the story would have been hilarious to call. Air Bud doesn't do it for me, so I'm going to go with Rookie of the Year.
1: <laughs> that's
0: the clip that we're going to tweet out for the audiogram air bud doesn't do it for me <laughs> deep thoughts from adam amin uh where can we next see you my man i know you're obviously so busy right now thankfully vacation where can we next find you on espn airwaves
3: i'll uh, i'll be in uh, your neck of the woods i'll be in toronto uh your old that your old stomping grounds i've got uh, raptors and celtics on christmas day we have the first game of the day on espn richard jefferson and myself and ariel hawani uh, the wow. great UFC reporter and host is going to step in, and do some NBA with us. So that's uh, Ariel, a, a it. fellow a Canadian,
0: blast. I believe he's from Montreal.
3: This is—I think—that's why they assigned him to the game. Like, this is a big deal. Like, I'm really excited. This is going to be Richard Jefferson and Ariel's first Christmas Day games. This will, I think, be my fourth uh, in my career. So, like, we're going to have a great time. We're like the rookie crew, basically. So, we're going to have a blast in Toronto, and then uh, and then we'll head to New York for the Pinstripe Bowl uh, a couple days later. After that.
0: I love it, man! Maple dip donuts is the way to go, and get the French vanilla at Tim Hortons. I do only drink coffee three or four times a year, but trust me, the uh, the uh, the French vanilla—it's I, might I, be I worth it. Coffee. Yeah, I,
3: th- I think this yeah. one will be worth it. This will be one of those trips where it's like you know this this needs to happen just for the for not for the. I hate calling it a novelty because it's not. I think for the experience of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Adam Amin, you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram. He's a loyal follower, cinephile. You should all be supporting him. Great stuff on the Irishman marriage story, and of course. Uh, Rookie of the Year as well. Back to vacation, more working out, lifting, and reading. What are you reading right now? That's the last question. A
3: little bit of Gladwell. Uh, going back and reading The Tipping Point. Uh, a friend of mine told me that so I, I saw Gone Girl, I think, a year ago. And I loved it. I, I had heard all about Gone Girl and how it was a just incredibly well-put-together story. And the movie is really great. And obviously, the twist that everybody's kind of familiar with now. But everybody kept telling me that I'd seen the movie. You've got to read the book. You've got to read the book. So I have the book. I got the book. A friend of mine sent it to me, so I'm going to start Gone Girl uh, after I finish up this Gladwell. Awesome,
0: man! I, I have read Gone Girl. It's a tremendous book. I mean, often the book is better than the movie, and it's—I mean, obviously you know what's coming now, but it's really, really well written. And uh, Gladwell is listen. Gladwell, fellow Canadian. I mean, you're listen. You talk to a Canadian. You're reading a Canadian. You're about to go call the Raptors <laughs> game. Fellow Canadian, out of me. That's what I'm going to call him from now on.
3: Honorary Canadian. I'll take honorary Canadian.
0: <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks, my man mount rushmore all right thanks so much to adam and me now it's time for a mount rushmore of war films God, pretty loaded list don't you think this is in honor of 1917 sam Mendy's new movie i'm gonna throw out glory right away no brainer edward zwick remarkable cast morgan freeman denzel washington won an academy award matthew broderick give him hell 54th uh, great film but the um black regiment which was in the civil war first one it's uh, emotionally resonant i think the war scenes are amazing in mean, the fat last 10 minutes that final battle is amazing i mean it's heart pounding but it really is the, the human characters that, that stay with you. Andre Brower, wonderful as Thomas as well. Well-educated guy. I mean, that whole movie is just, it's inspiring. And one of my favorite scores ever. Maybe be the best score ever. James Horner for glory. Best. So that's one. Apocalypse Now, I mean, just for the ride of the Valkyries, that whole helicopter assault sequence, amazing. This is the end. Martin Sheen having a breakdown at the start of the film. Brando as Colonel Kurtz. Duvall, Oscar nominated. As Francis Ford Coppola said, this film isn't about Vietnam. This film is Vietnam. I'm going Glory and Apocalypse Now, absolute no-brainers. I'm going to get a comedy in there. Good Morning Vietnam. Yes, love Robin Williams, one of his best performances. He's so funny, ad libs so much. But because he's such a good actor... Barry Levinson's a good director. There's actually some good drama towards the end, some romance as well. But honestly, his sequences when he's on the air, it is pure comic gold. Bruno Kirby is honestly fantastic as well in a supporting role. I love Good Morning Vietnam. And number four, come on. I got a platoon in there. One of my favorite films as a kid. Had the pleasure of talking to Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe, previously on Cinefile. You can check that on previous episodes. But I just love that story. I just thought it was amazing the fact that you have a guy who's stuck in the middle, who's stuck between the good sergeant and the bad sergeant. And Berenger is just chilling and so uh, nefarious. And Defoe is so saintly, and I just love their performances. I loved Oliver Stone's script. That one sequence that he writes about what a grunt means, a grunt will do anything to survive, and it's a voiceover montage of all the guys fighting the fleas and the bugs and the heat in Vietnam. It's so expressive, clearly claimed from Oliver Stone's heart and his own experiences. Amazing cast. You know, Keith David as well. Charlie Sheen obviously is really good in the movie, but uh, and obviously really well done all the war sequences. I'm gonna put my uh, Mount Rushmore war films: Apocalypse Now, Glory, Platoon, and Good Morning Vietnam.
1: That is a strong list. This is a hard category. There's so many, so many good movies here. Um, You're gonna get Tropic Thunder in there. <laughs> yeah, I would. If it was 10 <laughs> years ago, I would. Um, I would uh, just get out of the way now. Apocalypse Now is on there, and then I want to get a Kubrick movie in there, but it's Paths of Glory. Doctor Strangelove or Full Metal Jacket. I think I'll have to go with Full Metal Jacket. Um, and then I'm adding, I'm surprised you didn't put this on your list, but Inglorious Bastards, just because of the re- uh, revisionist history. And then one of my favorite movies of all time, The Manchurian Candidate from 1962 with Frank Sinatra. Nice. It, it's fantastic. Not the remake from 2004 with Denzel. Everyone watched the original one. That's my list.
0: Dude, love the inclusion of Mandarin. Sinatra, fantastic. In the movie. And you're right, much better than the update with Denzel and Meryl Streep. I mean, there's so many war movies out there. You're right. Hotel Rwanda, Black Hawk Down, American Sniper. Full Metal Jacket. I think the first half's incredible. I don't think the second half's very good. I think it's very disjointed, and I lost interest, and it's kind of aimless. But the first half, just where it's Arlie Lee Ermey, who is right. just, I mean, balls out. Him and Vincent D'Onofrio, that head to head. I mean, that's as good as movies get.
1: Oh, that's great. I would. I, real quick, honorable mention, Starship Troopers from 1998. I'm just going to throw that one in there.
0: <laughs> Thank, okay, then I'll put an honorable mention. Patton, underrated script written by Francis Ford Coppola, George C. Scott. The first 10 minutes alone is uh, epic, and uh, Scott won an Oscar for his performance, Unforgettable, as General Patton. Total Recall. Now it's time for Total Recall. We're going uh, the 2004 Oscars, so it's films from 2003. Best Picture. What do
1: we got, Joe? We have The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King, Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, Mystic River, and Sea Biscuit. <sighs>
0: I never saw Seabiscuit. My friend Mike Kiss loves that movie. Hair, it's really well done. You know, the horses, charming, all the rest of it. I'm going to go Mystic River, man. I thought it was a really powerful movie. I mean, Sean Penn. Is that my daughter in there? All those uh, performances. A great Dennis Lehane movie. Haunting. Just felt so much a film set in Boston. I'm going to go Mystic River, Robert Lorenz, Julie G. Hoy, Clint Eastwood as producers. I know for Lord of the Rings, this was like, all right, you know, the career, life and achievement award. This was the one just to reward them for the fact it was a real spectacle and in many ways impacted filmmaking. I don't think Lost in Translation is one of the five best. Master Commander, actually, I liked more than I thought I would Russell Crowe. And like I said, never saw Seabiscuit. So I'm going to go with Mystic River. Joe?
1: I'm going to go with Lord of the Rings, only because, and don't hate me for this, I've never seen Mystic River. And so, as a result, I need to go with Lord of the Rings.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I've said even see Mystic River, but I got you. Uh, best director, what do we have?
1: We have Peter Jackson for the Lord of the Rings, Fernando Merledes for City of God, Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation, Peter Weir, Master and Commander, and Clint Eastwood, Mystic River.
0: I love Clint Eastwood's direction in Mystic River, but I already gave it best uh, picture, I'm going to go with Fernando Morales, man. City of God was, I mean, that was just like a lightning bolt. When that movie came out, I can't believe it was 2003. I thought it was 2006, but 2003 it is. Um, amazing. I mean, it was, like, it was a bunch of gangster kids, man. It was like Scarface for kids set in Brazil. and Just the sweep of it, the epic uh, scope of it. I love the fact he was nominated. I forgot he actually did get nominated for Best Director. I'm glad the movie got some love. I would have liked to see seen a Best Picture nomination. But I would go Fernando Morales, Best Director, City of God, over Peter Jackson.
1: All right. I mean, I don't blame I love City of God. That that movie's incredible. I will go with Peter Jackson, though, only because of the innovative techniques he introduced to film. Gandalf being very big and Frodo being very small. A lot of that was practical. Uh, It was all done on set. So just the way that he was able to manipulate the perspective of the camera, I got to go with Peter Jackson.
0: You know, that's actually a really good point. I did not realize it was that uh, intricate. You love Gandalf. I love Gandolfini. What do we have for best actor?
1: We have Sean Penn from Mystic River, Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean, Ben Kingsley, House of Sand and Fog, Jude Law, Cold Mountain, and Bill Murray, Lost in Translation.
0: Wow. I, uh, I know my brother was so happy Johnny Depp got nominated. It was nice to see like a populist film like that kind of breakthrough, and he was really funny playing Keith Richards, Pirates of the Caribbean, or his homage to Keith Richards. Kingsley was haunting, man. And Massoud Amir Bahani, House of Sand and Fog. That ending was like, just terrifying. Never saw Cold Mountain, I just want to say Bill Murray's an Academy Award winner. All right? Sean Penn was awesome in Mystic River, and I have no issue with him winning, but I'm telling you right now, Bill Murray should have won an Academy Award for all the movies he's done. I don't think Lost in Translation is best, but I did think he showed uh, elements of drama and romance you wouldn't normally expect, and he did nail that aspect of a guy who's a sad sack actor, whose past is long behind him, who feels energized by Scarlett Johansson, this ingenue. I'm going Bill Murray, best actor.
1: I cannot agree with you more. I really want, yes. <laughs> really wanted Bill Murray for this uh, category. Just a huge Bill Murray fan, and also, I will just real quick from Mount Rushmore throw stripes onto the war movies as well. uh nice. but yeah, Bill Murray definitely best actor. All right, so for best actress, what do we have? We have Charlize Theron in Monster, Keisha Castle-Hughes in Whale Rider, Diane Keaton. Something's got to give. Samantha Morton in In America and Naomi Watts, 21 Grams.
0: Never saw Whale Rider. Guy Keaton was pretty good in Something's Got to Give. Oscar nominee, but not a winner. Samantha Morton, I'm telling you, man, In America, I love that movie. Really good script as well. So I'm glad she got nominated. Naomi Watts is heartbreaking in 21 Grams. I mean, both of those are really, really good. But honestly, Charlize Theron in Monsters, Eileen Wornos. Uh, remarkable. I mean, that transformation, the amount of weight she put on, shaving her eyebrows, her face, playing a serial killer. I mean, a, a remarkable transformation. I'll go with Charlize.
1: Yeah, I, I think that she's the clear front runner for this category, just for the transformation alone. So I'll go with Charlize as well.
0: Best supporting actor.
1: We have Tim Robbins, Mystic River, Alec Baldwin, The Cooler, Benicio Del Toro, 21 Grams, Jaiman Hunsu in America, Ken Wanatabi, The Last Samurai.
0: Never saw Last Samurai, so Ken Watanabe's out. Uh, in America, Jaman Huntsu, ridiculous nomination. I mean, the movie is excellent. Uh, Jim Sheridan wrote and directed it, did My Left Foot, and I love Samantha Morton's nomination, but I remember that year going, how the hell did he get nominated? He's in like 10, 15 minutes. It like, was ridiculous. He never should have been nominated. Del Toro, always fantastic. Very dark and brooding in 21 Grams. Robbins was haunted as a guy who's a victim of child sex abuse, but my winner was Alec Baldwin. I thought he was marvelous in The Cooler. I was so happy when he got nominated. Ebert wrote a great review of The Cooler. Check it out, and particularly about Baldwin's performances. He said he mixes the, the role with a lot of brawn but also, heart and the way he treats William H. Macy in the movie. I would have loved to seen Alec Baldwin as an Academy Award winner. I would have voted for him as in the cooler.
1: I'm going to go with Benicio del Toro for 21 grams. Definitely dark and brooding.
0: Supporting actress.
1: We have R- Renee Zellweger, Cold Mountain. Shore Adaslu, House of Sand and Fog. Patricia Clarkson, Pieces of April. Marcia Gay Harding for Mystic River. And Holly Hunter, 13.
0: I saw Holly Hunter 13 years later, and she was excellent. I mean, God, you feel for any woman who has to deal with teenage daughters. I uh, never saw pieces of April. never saw cold Mount, which Renee won for. Marsha Gay Harden, I thought she was better in Pollock, so I'm glad she won for that, although she was excellent, Mr. Grever. I'd vote for Shoray Agdashlu, amazing as Nadira Behrani, House of Sand and Fog, Iranian immigrant, uh, their family's being overrun, husband's losing his mind. I would have gone for Shore.
1: I'm going to stick with the Academy here and go with Renee Zellweger for Cold Mountain. All right. Uh,
0: two more to go here. Original screenplay. What do we have?
1: We have Lost in Translation by Sophia Coppola, The Barbarian Invasions, Denise Arakan, Dirty Pretty Things, Stephen Knight, Finding Nemo, Andrew Staten, Bob Peterson, and David Reynolds. In America, Jim Sheridan.
0: I'm going to go with In America. As I mentioned earlier, I, I love that movie, and it's a you know great immigrant story, Irish family acclimating, Patty Considine, Samantha Morton. I love the ending. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's about a family who's uh, lost one of their kids and just trying to overcome that unimaginable tragedy. I love that script. I would go with In America, although I I know Sevilla Coppola obviously was a good script with Lost in Translation. Barbarian Invasion, Canadian Love, Denise Arcan, I forgot he got nominated, a great underrated movie. I'm going to go with In America for Jim Sheridan.
1: Normally I go with Finding Nemo, but... Lost translation is on the list, so I got to go with that. For the same reasons you said before. Nice. And last up, uh, adapted screenplay. We have The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, American Splendor, City of God, Mystic River, and Seabiscuit. Never saw Seabiscuit. I'm
0: not going to go Lord of the Rings. City of God, is more about the directing, I think, rather than the screenplay. Mystic River, really good script by Brian Helgeland, who also wrote L.A. Confidential, based on the novel. This one by Dennis Lehane. I'm going with American Splendor. Great script. Sherry Springer Berman, Robert Pulcini, based on the comic book series American Splendor by Harvey Pekar and Our Cancer Year by Harvey. So inventive. Um, Paul Giamatti remarkable performance best adaptive screenplay I thought American Splendor was so smart I mean they they break the fourth wall you have Harvey Peeker in the movie commenting that Paul Giamatti why is this guy playing me blah 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 you have his cartoons voiceover narration you have Giamatti the fictionalized version of him I thought American Splendor was a very special film
1: I'm in complete agreement with you Uh, I'm gonna go with American Splendor as well plus I just love Giamatti so definitely that movie
0: I was gonna say we are in agreement on that All right. uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. We'll be back next week with our reviews of the top 10 films of 2019. Uh, Thank you so much for supporting Cinephile. As always, go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Thank you so much to Cadence 13 and John McDermott, Chris Corcoran, and our entire crew. Of course, Joe Engelbrecht, my man who uh, always keeps the ship afloat. And uh, I can't thank you enough for giving us a home here on Cinephile. Have a wonderful new year. We will talk to you next week here on Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.